This episode of Medic Mindset is supported by iSimulate. From the very beginnings of this podcast, I've been committed to keeping Medic Mindset always and forever free. Their support allows me to do that. I also love what they make. I personally use iSimulate in the classroom, even today, using it in our advanced airway class for some hands-on work with capnography. Thank you, iSimulate. One of the things that paramedics have when you're driving to the hospital, you have more time next to that patient and their parent than we do in the hospital. We are so chaotic running from room to room to room like ADHD squirrels. You get uninterrupted time in the back of the ambulance one-on-one. You establish this parent bond, this patient bond. It's amazing. And they looked sick. They were tripoding. There was very bad strider. I looked at the kid and I went, oh, you're not, not my normal croup kid. Everything is a game of chess. So here are my next three moves. And I'm going to let make sure that everyone on our team knows what the next three moves are. Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. In this episode of the Thinking Series, I talk with Dr. Joelle Donofrio Odman. She's an associate professor of pediatrics and emergency medicine at the University of California, San Diego. And she's the associate medical director for the San Diego Fire and Rescue Department and the city of San Diego. I first saw her speak in a talk during Refresh 2021. If you're not familiar with what Refresh 2021 is, Go to the show notes. It's a great way to get some free CE. I watched her talk on pediatric respiratory distress, and I was intrigued with how she talked about the pediatric assessment triangle. She gave it a new frame, where previously I'd used the tool as this abstract kind of concept to get a general sense of pediatric sick, not sick. She made the triangle more concrete, more tangible, even quantifiable. I took so much away from this talk, and I think it's perfect timing in September of 2021, with RSV and COVID flaring up in our pediatric populations. I was thrilled that I had this one queued up. It just happened to line up uh, to be well-timed, unfortunately or fortunately. Either way, we need to be masters of pediatric respiratory distress. So let's dig in. How common is pediatric respiratory distress? If, if the tones go off today and I'm sitting at a EMS station, I'm about to go on this call, how likely is it to be a pediatric respiratory call? All in all, I think peds are only about like 12 to 15% of EMS calls. And of those, the really, really sick kids are probably about 10% of those. Now, I'll ask you this, Ginger. If you're going to say a pediatric call, what age group is the one that scares you? Is it the little kids or is it like the teenagers? No, it's the little littles. The littler they are, the scarier they are. They're more foreign to me, right? I see 10-year-olds out in the world all the time, but I don't see two-month-olds all the time. So the younger you are, the more likely that respiratory distress is going to be the reason that you're calling 911 when you're sick. Mm -hmm. So the number one reason for 911 calls in the little littles, like the under two-year-olds, is pediatric respiratory distress. Okay. Just anatomically, they are built to have respiratory distress when they're sick. As we get older, we get better, which is great because when I get a cold, which I get a lot of colds when we're not in COVID and massing and gloving and everything, 
I don't want to cough so hard I throw up and end up having retractions. And I mean, if you think of all the kids, things kids go through when they're sick, when they're little, 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 I'm glad we grow out of that. Yes. Let's start with anatomy and physiology. What is it about their anatomy that makes a cold worse for them than me or you? Yeah. And, and so I'd like to start off. I love Peter and Tevi always talks about like kids and adults are very similar. And I, and, and I love that. Yes. Always start with what you're comfortable with and then we're going to add to it. Oxygenation, ventilation, perfusion is always key, but there are things to know about with little kids that can help you out with this. They have these, they're like, they're like popsicles, like toddlers, think about a toddler, they have these giant heads and then these itty bitty stick bodies, which means that when you lay them flat on the bed, their occiput cranks their head up and it folds the trachea. So that just even laying them down can cause a little bit of an obstruction. And then when you add to the fact that their tongues are large, they have smaller mouths, they tend to get like really wet and drooly. You have more odds for airway obstruction there. And then they have just anatomically subglottic stenosis, just normally, like it's just a little bit more triangular shaped. And then their whole airway is smaller. Their trachea, like that entire, if you think of like a fire hose, their fire hose is a tiny weak garden hose as opposed to an adult regular size, like three inch. And then as you go down the lower airways, it's the same thing. They're smaller. It makes it harder for mucus to get out. Their bones are cartilaginous, which makes them more flexible. So they're going to retract and have to work harder. They're just physiologically set up to have more of an effect from just a minor cold compared to older kids and adults. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also you're, your talk, you talked a lot about there being obligate nose breathers. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so babies are born to breastfeed. That is, I mean, it's what they're meant to do. They feed a lot and they need to breathe at the same time. So they have, they're trained that they can only breathe through their nose. So if you are four months and under, like six months and under, the only thing you breathe through actually is your nose. So you might look cute and laying there with your mouth open, but it doesn't mean you're breathing through your mouth. So if you have a stuffy nose, you get a cold, just nasal congestion, you have a, um, an airway obstruction. Mm-hmm. Suctioning out of the nose can open up an entire airway on the baby. Yeah. It's so important. It's so important. It is opening the airway. It is literally You're- opening the airway. We will have kids come in and they like with bronchial, let's say you'll have like a 12 month old with bronchiolitis who's just, I mean, they're so wet. They have copious nasal secretions. They have very wet lung sounds. They're retracting. They're tachypnic to the seventies. Their sats are in the mid eighties. And then we'll go and we'll suction their nose out and their sats will go up to the mid nineties and their retractions will go away. They'll still sound a little bit wet and like they can still be junky and like we, we might still need to do some other work, but it's amazing what just cleaning out the nose will do. We need to advocate for getting an extra bulb syringe and putting it in the airway kit. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say. I would say we really you need to go to your medical directors and go, hey, this works. It's simple. It's easy. And just get a second one and throw it in your airway kit. The whole time I've been in EMS, I've heard this saying that I don't know if it's meant to scare me or make me feel good, but it it does not make me feel good. The concept is that kids compensate really, really well until they don't. And then I, I have this frame that they crash. And can you help us differentiate when they're sitting on that edge where they're 
maybe so tired that they've moved from respiratory distress into failure? What do you, what do you look for? How do you know that's impending? Yeah, this is and this is great. And and I hate to say it, Ginger, but it, it is actually true. Kids, I mean, they have they're not um, they have not wasted a lot of their physiologic reserve, right? They their whole lives they've been healthy. They're not out there smoking and eating years and years of junk food and having like arthrosclerosis and hypertension and COPD. These are generally healthy kids who have a lot of like healthy tissues and they're they're good and and then they compensate and and then they compensate until they possibly can and there's just not a lot of reserve left. So they will crash very quickly. Um, but they will compensate for a while. So you catching the compensated phase is going to be critical. The pediatric assessment triangle is what I use. It is so easy. I, we call it PEDS assessment triangle. You can also use it on adults. There's three sides to it. And I know if you already know this, it's okay. You can listen to it again because it's literally that important. The first one is work of breathing. When I'm walking down a hallway in an ER where I have the ER just full of kids, I do this on every kid I'm actually walking by. I just pause a little bit as I'm walking by the room and I look and just looking at them. How is their chest moving? Is it moving really fast? Do they have tracheal tugging? Like, can you see retractions from across the room? But you have to practice at this because you you learn and you look at it and you go, oh my gosh, sitting and like, you might walk by and go, oh, they're fine. And then you pause and you look and you really look, look at how their rib cage is actually moving their entire rib cage from their neck all the way down to past their rib cage. Is it moving really fast? And then you look at how is their mental status? Are they pissed off that you're looking at them? Or are they just kind of like lethargic against parents, like sitting there panting, like all of their energy and all their focus is going on just breathing as hard as they can, like focusing on breathing. That kid's going into respiratory failure. That is a kid that I'm not continuing to walk by. I'm walking into that room to help. Or if they're cyanotic and poorly perfused and working hard to breathe, that is a kid who has lost their compensation and they are really sick. So they have had two sides of the triangle out. Because I know once you have those three sides of the triangle out, it's called an acute life threat. But one of my residents, I said, what is it called when you have the three sides of the triangle out? And he went, the triangle of death. And I said, yes, and I'm stealing that. And I'm going with that. I'm going to call it the triangle of death from now on. If you just look at them with the pediatric assessment triangle, before you approach them, you're across the room. How are they breathing? What is their mental status? And how is their circulation? If they've got two of those sides out, they're bad and they're on the edge and you really need to intervene well before they get that third one out. Mm-hmm. Because when they get that third one out, they are peri-arrest. That's what you said in your talk. And it was the first time I had seen someone use the pediatric assessment triangle in that way. That's quantifiable. Am I going to walk by the room and be like, yeah, okay, med student can sit there and talk a while or I'll sneak in some orders, but let you do your thing versus I'm actually going in. And if I see like if it's significant work of breathing or like there's more than one side out, I might be calling to go like sticking my head and going call RT as I'm walking into the room. And if all three are out, I'm going, everyone come in. I need, I need all hands on deck for this. Like we're, right. we're going to intervene. And then the other one that to do quickly is if they're in shock. So if their perfusion is bad, poor perfusion, you need to move quickly. If they're not hypotensive, they're going to be getting there and you want to intervene before they become hypotensive. Mm -hmm. So if you have a kid who's altered or you have a kid who looks gray, they've got poor color, 
they are someone that you need to move quicker on to catch them if they're because if they're uncompensated, you want to catch them while they're in compensated shock before they get to uncompensated shock. That's helpful. And the frame I've had for respiratory distress versus failure had to do with their respiratory effort, but that's too late, <laughs> right? So I, I can do the binary. It's either distress or failure, but what you've helped me get to is how are they trending towards the failure? The quantifiable way, because we actually, we have scoring systems for all these in the hospital and, and the, the way that retractions go is they start with intercostal and then they move to sub, um, like a little bit, like a little, just slight subcostal and slight supraclavicular. And then they move from the supraclavicular to tracheal tugging and like belly breathing. And then they move to like a sternal rocking pattern and head bobbing. And so if you ever see a baby who's sitting there bobbing their head, they are really bad. And so you can, I mean, you can have normal mental status, like a pissed off screening baby and good perfusion, still have them be like trending towards respiratory failure without the other side of the triangle out where you're like, oh crap, you are really working. Obviously like step in, intervene because they're going to need some help because they're going to start moving towards hypoxia and uh, decompensation. That's really helpful. No one's ever given me that kind of linear progression that you just gave me. Yeah, it's scary. So you watch, like, and it's one of those things, like I always, even in the hospital, let's say we have a, a four-week-old come in with bronchiolitis because yes, they do get bronchiolitis. Like your little newborn baby that you brought home from the hospital, keep them away from all kids with colds because that three-year-old with a runny nose might give something that could kill the four-week-old. And they come in and they've got just a little bit of retractions, just a little bit of intercostal retractions. And then they get a stuffy nose and then it goes to significant tracheal tugging, head bobbing, and they can quickly go into when they start going really to kipnic and then head bobbing. And if you're not treating them and suctioning that nose out and then possibly giving them some positive pressure, they'll go hypoxic. And then if they have prolonged hypoxia, that leads to bradycardia and to arrest. It's good to recognize there are stages. And if you're not recognizing the stages and treating, then it'll keep going. And then the other thing is that to keep reassessing. I mean, my last shift, we had a 10 month old with bronchiolitis who came in working pretty good. He uh, had tracheal tugging, uh, tachypnea to the sixties, copious rhinorrhea, really wet lung. I mean, you could just, I, I literally, we had a paramedic intern and I like pulled him to the door and was like, look through, what do you see? And, and we had a resident at the bedside taking care of the patient. I was like, this is obvious from across the room. You can go, wow, this kid is really working. We have a gown off too. Cause if you, if you expose the chest, you can just see the kid just sitting there panting and tachypnic and really retracting. And the trachea, always look at the neck, have the parents lift the chin up too, because babies have no necks. And once you lift that chin up, you're like, oh man. And if you have any tracheal tugging, that's significant. Like that's significant enough that instead of giving puffs of albuterol, we're going to do a whole hour long in the hospital. So we'll start positive pressure. So we have high flow nasal cannulas and we'll start giving like maximum high flow nasal cannula. And then it's that you have to reassess. So is that enough? When you go back after the kids finish being pissed off, the kids, because you put something in their nose and they've calmed down and settled down, is that what they need? Or do they need more pressure or do they need less pressure? And so the key thing is that you go, you go and you do your intervention. You, you let the kids settle, you give it time for the intervention to work, and then you look and go, do I need more or do I need less? How are they responding? What's their respiratory rate? What are the retractions? And 
And this kid ended up needing, like, because you're like, oh, he's probably, he should, maybe, does he need the ICU? Does he need the regular floor? And he needed more than high flow nasal cannula. Like, he kept having tracheal tuggings. He was better, but he kept needing higher and higher levels. And so we ended up putting him on nasal CPAP in the unit. So if you have a longer transport with a kid, you start out, you suction, you give them some oxygen. If you have them on oxygen in their respiratory distress, have them on the end title. So you can see, are they ventilating well as well? And if you're like, no, even after nasal suctioning, they're still working and they're sitting there really to kipnic and retracting and tugging. And you're like, well, I don't have high flow nasal cannula on a ground EMS yet, yet, someday. Anyone in industry, if you're listening to this, please bring it to us. What can I do? I can put BVM and just help augment their breath. I can give them just a little bit of a squeeze every time they go to take a breath in. You can give them non-invasive positive pressure ventilation using an Ambu bag. So we're getting into treatments. And what's neat is that we can talk about these treatments without really having done a too elaborate of a differential diagnosis. We're treating hypoxia. We're treating the respiratory distress. But I want to talk about how we differentiate things because a foreign body airway obstruction is certainly different than croup. Would you mind if we just kind of start at the upper airway? What are some some of the more common things, right? If we see upper airway, strider, that hoarse sounding inhalation or musical inhalation, um, what are you, what diseases are you thinking? If you go in and you hear, (laughs) and it's an inspiratory whistling noise, it's loudest at the neck. Um, not as loud on the chest. And, and I literally will put my stethoscope on their neck. That is strider. And so when I see that, I start going, okay, is this a kid? And I ask based on history, is it they had a runny nose for a few days, some fever, coughing, and then they had this really harsh barking seal-like cough. I'm like, cool. That's croup. That's easy. Croup is probably the most common cause of strider. The kid's airways, because it's so much smaller, just a few millimeters of swelling from having a cold leads to it being so narrowed that when they go to breathe in, it's like a balloon and the whole thing just kind of collapses in together with the pressure. That now, because kids are vaccinated, that's it's most likely going to be a virus. And if you were a med student, I'd go, this is going to be parainfluenza if you're taking an exam. But really, any cold can cause this. Any cold can cause a little bit of inflammation of the trachea, causing narrowing, causing viral croup. If they've had really high fevers and they just don't look good. I mean, these are kids who don't look like they just have a cold. Like they are tired and they're having fevers of 103, 104, and they just look really fatigued and they've got they sound like they have the barking cough. They've got strider when you listen to them at rest and you give your, like your treatments and you give your treatments and it's just not working. Like it's not giving you the response you normally give, or maybe you'll have like a little bit of a response and then they go back and you give another breathing treatment and they go back. At that point, you start thinking, could this actually be bacterial? Could they have a bacterial tracheitis? So instead of just a little bit of viral swelling and increased blood flow to the area. There's pus in there and then they've got pus coating their trachea. Um, the reason I know you keep being like, no, talk about differential before we get to treatment. But this is in the thought process on how I figure out which way they are. If you have a cold and you just have a little bit of swelling of the tissue and I give you inhaled epinephrine, that's going to cause vasoconstriction, which is going to open up that tissue and opening up that airway just a few millimeters will increase 
the airway opening so much that your resistance significantly goes down and you have this great response. Pus does not have a response to inhaled epinephrine and it's not going to open up. So that's why these kids just don't sound like you'll have a little bit because the swelling tissue around the pus will have an effect and that'll open. It's just not as pronounced of an effect as we see with viral croup. Now, let's say we were back in like the 1950s earlier and you came in and you had this and then I looked in your mouth and you got this thick gray coating. I would think of... um diphtheria. So the original croup, when you had that harsh barky cough and strider back in the day, it was diphtheria. And diphtheria is really scary. We still have cases of diphtheria in third world countries. We actually had a ton of cases in World War II, Um, but it's one of your childhood vaccinations. And so we just don't see it anymore. So it went from diphtheria to bacterial tracheitis. And then we, the childhood vaccinations cover the most common common um, bacteria that cause bacterial tracheitis, sepsis, pneumonia, meningitis. And so we stopped seeing bacterial tracheitis as much. And so now when we hear it, we can go, ah, that sounds like a virus. That's probably just a virus. But we're back in the day, or if you have an unvaccinated kid in an area where you have like a large amount of unvaccinated kids and the bacteria can jump around, you have an increased odds of having a bacterial etiology. Now, the other things that you can have And we talk a lot about epiglottitis because it's one of those big, scary things. So you have this huge, red, swollen cherry of an epiglottis. And the horror story is this. You're going to go in and you're going to take a look at the mouth and the kid's going to get mad and then it's going to get stuck and you're going to not have an airway. And so you need to do a very, like, this is the, the case of keep the kid as calm as you can and do your exam in the OR with anesthesia. But with vaccinations... We just don't see this as much anymore. It was the the Hib, the H influenza that caused a lot of the epiglottitis. And so if you have a vaccinated child, they're just not as likely to have epiglottitis. Is it impossible? No, anything's possible. That's why we teach it to you. But these kids, they are they are tripoding and they're febrile and they're drooling. Like I don't know if you've ever heard of a a PTA, a posterior tonsillar abscess or a retropharyngeal abscess, and you have so much swelling in the back and you're hunching, you're trying to get your airway and like the really bad impending airway. This is how they look. They look sick. I have had one case of this in my career and they came in and they looked sick. They were tripoding. There was very bad strider. I looked at the kid and I went, oh, you're not, not my normal croup kid. You are, you are different. If you tend to delay this patient back, they got even worse. And I went, nope, I'm going to let you sit. You're going to hang yourself in your position of comfort. I'm going to keep you as calm as possible. We're going to start some breathing treatments and I'm going to have everyone ready for what are the next steps so we can get this kid to the OR for examination. And it's a keep calm and it's like, everything is a game of chess. So here are my next three moves, and I'm going to let make sure that everyone on our team knows what the next three moves are so we can all be in collaboration. So if they have Strider, and I know we're, you're like, Joelle, stop. We're just doing differential, and I keep going to treatment. But that's because that's literally the steps that go down. Yep. I'm if they have Strider, I'm, I'm going to do an inhaled epinephrine because it's the same thing. It's just going to cause vasoconstriction of the blood vessels and open the airway up, which is what I want. Regardless, if you have Strider, I want to open your airway up. If Mm. you only have Strider because when you're really pissed off, I'm just going to calm you down. 
because when you're ticked off, you have very turbulent airflow. And when I calm you down, it's smoothed into a laminar flow, which mm-hmm. is easier with a little bit narrow of a narrowing of an airway. So if a kid's like in the parent's arms and they're calm, there's no strider at all, I won't do much. I might give them some steroids in the ER, but yeah. if even when they're calm, they have strider, it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. I'm going to give them a breathing treatment to help open that airway up. I feel like that's a key takeaway. Strider when they're at rest. And I've yes. seen this firsthand with my own kid. When they're angry and they're pissed that their throat hurts and they're, they wake up and they're all upset, once they can calm down a little bit, everything settles. Yes. If it continues when they're just laying in bed, that's when you're saying that's more concerning for you. And which is why it's so important to do your pediatric assessment triangle before you've actually scared the kid. <laughs> So when they're calm, they're being held by their parent, they're kind of just looking at you apprehensively and you haven't tried to touch them. They're not screaming mm-hmm. because the moment you touch them, they start screaming, their strider is going to go up. Right. Okay. Now the kid who like the mom's like, oh, they're playing with the ball and, or they were eating and choking and now they're unconscious. That, that that's the, I mean, look, mm-hmm. do your DL, look for, look for that foreign body and use your McGill's. It's key. And I have seen lives saved from McGill form body removal. This is such an essential skill set. This is one where every time I'm involved with airway teaching, I usually throw some, some form bodies in all the different sizes in the infant head, in the toddler head, in the adult head, because the McGill's are muscle memory. And they're kind of, if you're not super comfortable with using them, they require some practice. And so I want people to be used to the small McGill's, the big McGill's having to move that giant tongue out of the way with a DL. So this is a really good one. Whenever you have a chance to go practice your DL skills with a baby head, throw some foreign bodies in there and practice pulling them out. It is life saving, Mm. life saving. Um, But however, the most common way that foreign bodies actually present in the pediatric population is with wheezing or, or strider, usually more wheezing. So the, the 12 to 18 month olds, or like the 18 to 24 month, the, the, you can run around and cause chaos and you grab things and you do things secretly without your family know, knowing those like really mischievous toddlers. They are the group that tends to get the foreign body aspirations. And it's more of, it's not the foreign body airway obstruction. It's a foreign body aspiration. They're not going to have the whole, I'm unconscious. I have obstruct complete obstruction or I have complete strider and I'm going unconscious and you know get those McGills and look these are the ones who are I'm wheezing and maybe it's just on my right side because I'm more likely to go down my right knee stem and so I ask about it any kid who comes into me with respiratory distress whether I think it's croup or bronchiolitis or asthma I always ask when they're especially when they're that age group is there any chance there's a foreign body app like aspiration where have they recently been eating anything that they might've choked on? Do you think there's an older sibling that could have given them something? When you look at the literature, the way these kids usually present, it's like a toddler who comes in brought in by EMS for croup. And then a few days later gets brought in by EMS for bronchiolitis and then bronchiolitis. And then they're diagnosed with the asthma. And, and then it comes by that's that like enough time has gone through and you get an x-ray and there's like this big old right middle lobe, pneumonia like ends this obstruction and the parents like oh yeah there was that one time and and when I say keeps coming in this isn't like several months this is usually like several days like like a week or like a few weeks 
And then the history comes out like, oh yeah, they were, they were eating peanuts and he coughed a lot and we pat him on the back and then he was fine. So we didn't do anything about it. And they scope them and they'll, they'll find foreign bodies. And these usually take several presentations to the hospital. And so it's really good to ask a thorough history. And I would say that's one of the things that paramedics have when you're driving to the hospital, you have more time next to that patient and their parent than we do in the hospital. We are so chaotic and running from room to room to room, like ADHD squirrels. You get uninterrupted time in the back of the ambulance one-on-one. You establish this parent bond, this patient bond. It's amazing. Ask about it. Is there any chance that this could have, like they could have choked on something. And if you come to us and you bring them into like roll into the ER and go, yeah, I know it looks like bronchiolitis, but mom says they choked on this. I might be a foreign body aspiration. We'll go, holy crap. Thank you. Thank you. Because there are very special x-rays we get to look for this. And those kids actually get admitted and ENT will actually bronch them and look for pieces. Mm-hmm. So I did a episode early in the years that I've been doing Medic Mindset. I did one with Dr. Peter Antevi. Uh, the episode's called In the Zone, the Antevi Zone. And, he's awesome. Well, he's a gift. He's a gift to, to paramedics for sure. And he was a um, he And to kids. And to kids, yeah. One of his biggest gifts that I think he's given is, man, so many, it's hard to pick one. Um, he's taught us so much about closure and things like that recently. But before that, he was one of the first to be brave enough to say, like, because we had this mantra that kids are not just little adults, right? And But no one really uh, knew what that meant. It's like, okay, well, then what are they, right? Are they just some little yeah. aliens? Um, and he made it a mission to kind of reassure paramedics that, yeah, actually, you can treat them like humans. SVT in a PED is the same as an adult, right? Same approach. You're looking for the same things. I called Dr. Antevi to ask him if his paradigm where kids are like adults, I asked him if this holds up in the pediatric respiratory distress patient, and this was his response. Hey, Ginger, this is Dr. Peter Antevi. Thank you so much for having me today. So grateful that you allowed me to come in and speak here on the pediatric patient. And you know, for many years, I've seen the light now. And I tell people that children are just like little adults. And it's so true in so many ways. I will tell you that when it comes to assessment, pediatric assessment, it's really another skill that you have to learn because, number one, the child is not going to tell you exactly how they feel because oftentimes they're nonverbal. And I think that one of the biggest things you can do in pediatrics is use your eyes and your ears and just be present, listen to the family member, and most importantly, do a great assessment on the child. And that oftentimes means evaluating them from across the room, looking at their face, looking at their nares, how they're breathing, do they have a cough, how does that cough look like, look at their chest, their accessory muscles. So I think for pediatric respiratory patients, the assessment is very important, number one. Second most important thing is to talk to the family. In other words, many times I remember missing the croup patient because I didn't hear the barky cough and I didn't bother asking the right questions. So as an example, the child who has pediatric asthma, that child will have been coughing 
all day, and then it just gets worse in the nighttime, as opposed to the croup patient who mom puts the kid to bed at 8 p.m., the kid has a little runny nose, and then suddenly at midnight, the kid wakes up, looks like he's in a different world, has a barky cough, and then the mom calls 911 in a panic. And so knowing how to ask the question and pull it from the mom and saying, let me ask you a question. Was your child coughing all day and even after you put them to bed? No. Did your child suddenly wake up in the middle of the night and look discombobulated and you almost didn't recognize who they were and they looked pretty severely ill? Yes, yes, that's my child. That's a croup patient because with croup, they're having trouble exhaling. It's an obstructive lung disease. And the end tidal CO2 is going from 35 to 45 to 55 to 65. And when they wake up, they don't look normal. They don't look right. And the parent gets very anxious. They call 911 in a panic. By the time we get there, the PCO2 has dropped all the way back down to 35, 40 because they're awake. But the mother still looks panicked. So beyond making a good assessment, it's important to sit down, talk to the family, ask the right questions, and then those two pieces of information will give you the diagnosis every single time. So bottom line is take your time, use your eyes and your ears, put on your listening cap and talk to the family, make a good assessment. You'll make the right diagnosis and then you'll give the right treatment. Hope that was helpful, Ginger. And again, thank you for all you do. And I'm missing you in person. Hopefully I'll see you at a conference soon. Take care. If you don't mind, I'd love to ask you the same question. Is is it true with respiratory conditions that we can approach at least a similar mental model kids the way we approach adults? Yeah, right. Like I said, the pediatric assessment triangle, you can do that to an adult as well. What is their work of breathing? You might not need to take my top, like my clothes all the way off the tell if I'm working to breathe. So so looking your assessment on a child will differ from an adult, but it's literally because with an adult, they're larger, they have fixed bones. Like I can tell your work of breathing with a t-shirt on. Like I can, like if you're working to breathe, I can see it through versus a kid. I'm, I might need to look a little bit closer because you're hiding a little bit better, but it's still that looking, assessing what is the work of breathing. Is it upper? Is it lower? What are my treatments going to be? The rack epi um, versus, versus my albuterol. Like it, Cause we don't have a ton of treatments. So it's kind of like, what is that there? Steroids really depends on your scope of practice and what it is. Foreign body, complete obstructive airway. It's the same in both. You're going to DL and try to get that airway out. And it's oxygenation, ventilation, perfusion. The basics, they don't change. Your goals are to keep the patient doing those three things. The, the tips are that if you know the caveats on pediatrics, it'll help you to do the oxygenation, ventilation, and perfusion. Um, knowing that they've got these big giant heads and you want to have a sniffing position, right? The goal is a sniffing position. Getting the head in alignment with their sternal notch, that's going to be the goal. Whether you're a kid or an adult, that is going to be the goal is, is getting them in the sniffing position. Whether it's crank the head up if they're an adult or crank the chest up to being a kid, it's all the same alignment that we're trying to get. Having the the ventilation, let's say you need to bag, bagging a kid versus bagging an adult. What are you doing? You're applying enough pressure and enough tidal volume that you're getting a chest lift. You're not overinflating the stomach 
and you have, you see your good uh, tidal waves that you know that you're giving good breasts, you're not hyperventilating, you're not hypoventilating. It's the same thing. Like that, like, so the basics are the basics. There might be different rates that you're going to use to things, but I, I love Peter's path on that on everyone's the same, treat them as humans. Like don't get overwhelmed and get freaked out. You're going to a kid, but it is nice to know there are caveats to this is going to help you out more in the pediatric populations. When you get to the smaller kids, here's the, the things to think about. So before we move away from upper airway, I think we should talk about anaphylaxis and bronchiolitis because you've described them as kind of a mixture of upper and lower airway compromise. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Could we start with bronchiolitis? Because you've said it so many times, I want to make sure that the listener knows what that yes. is. And I'm actually really glad that you're doing this podcast right now. And I'm hoping people listen to it because we are going into a really weird bronchiolitis season right now. COVID held off bronchiolitis. Kids were safe. We didn't have any colds or bronchiolitis season this past winter. And then now that all the, um, the guards are off and people are out and merging and reacting RSV, which is one of the more common causes of bronchiolitis, not the only cause, but one of the more common causes. And it's very contagious and causes a lot of, a lot of respiratory stress in the, the littler ones. It's here where we are hitting bronchiolitis season. So this is very appropriate. Bronchiolitis is a really bad baby chest cold. Like, you know, when you get sick, because you're an adult, I assume you've had colds before. Mm. You know, the really annoying cold where you have to blow your nose a lot. Like, it's just, it's gross. There's so much green snot. And then you have that really wet chest cold. Mm -hmm. And it's annoying. And it's just a cold. It's just really an annoying cold. Right. And it's gross. Uh Uh-huh. That is bronchiolitis, but in an adult like that, it's like, it's that equivalent. Like you have gross stuff in your upper airway. You have gross stuff in your lower airways. That's all it is. It's a really big, gross, wet, cold. But when you're small, that obstruction of your nose with that really gross snot, it leads to airway obstruction and respiratory distress and failure with their little lungs. When they get that chest cold, that leads to increased mucus plugging and increased work of breathing and the resistance and retractions and tachypnea. When we think of bronchiolitis, we think of you have an inflammation and a, and a respiratory infection that is your entire respiratory tract from your nose all the way down to your lungs. And it might switch. So I might see a kid and all they have is the nasal portion. I'll warn the parents, hey, they, they've got, it's essentially like a head cold, right? And it's going to start here. It might go lower. If it goes lower, here's what to look for and when to come back and suction the nose out. And I always tell them, suction your nose out before every single feed and before they go to sleep. Because that's going to be the most important thing is keeping the nose clean. But it's a, it's just that really nasty cold that you get that involves your nose and your lungs. And it's it's painful, and you, but you get through it and the treatment is time. And if you are, um, if you have, if you're a little kid with bronchiolitis, not just cold, like we, cause we give you a special name for it. <laughs> um, if your oxygen is under 90, we give you, we admit you for oxygen. If you're working hard to breathe, like you're tachypnic or you're retracting significantly, we admit you for positive pressure ventilation. We have diff- lots of different machines for that. Back in the day, we had to intubate a lot more of these cause we didn't have all the non-invasive options, but now we have an arsenal of non-inventive positive pressure ventilation treatments will try a breathing treatment. Like, so if they're wheezing and they're retracting, there is no harm in trying albuterol. It's more of a, does albuterol work? 
sometimes kids, they have that family history of asthma. There's like an A to P, like maybe they have eczema and they're, they are people who are going to respond to albuterol. Cool. If your body likes it and it works on your lungs, we will give you more and we will put that on its schedule. If you're like, no, that just made my heart rate go up and didn't do anything. We just won't give it to you again. No harm, no foul. We used to do back in the day is give everyone steroids. And um, some studies were done that show, showed you don't need steroids for bronchiolitis. It's just a viral cold. It's not a asthma exacerbation. Like these are not asthmatic kids. Now the caveat to that is you can be an atopic kiddo that responds to albuterol and is a known reactive airway disease where at home you're getting intermittent albuterol. Every time you get a cold, you need albuterol. Those kids we call reactive airway disease. They can also get bronchiolitis. We'll do steroids and albuterol for them. Chronic lung disease babies will do steroids and albuterol for them. But if you're just a two-year-old or like under, under like two and under, and you've just got a really nasty head and chest cold, trial albuterol, suction that nose out and give them positive pressure. Do you know the diagnosis of anaphylaxis is? How do you diagnose? Like what, what is, if you look at the literature and you go, what does the International Association okay. of Allergy and Immunology say? I would think it would say is? like two body systems affected with a known allergen contact or something like that. You would think that, right? No, no. So the diagnosis or like <laughs> the, the description of anaphylaxis is a potentially fatal allergic reaction. That is it. They kept okay. it simple because they want you to go, I have I, I have a patient who might have the anaphylaxis. Give them the epi. They want you to be aggressive and hard and attack and give them epi ASAP because that is the life-saving treatment. So they left it really vague. Mm-hmm. And then they gave three different groups of who do you give epinephrine to? One of them is, let's say, let's say I walk in, Ginger and I have, we're podcasting, we take a lunch break, I see, and we're in the same room together, we're not virtual at this point. And I walk back into the room and Ginger is unconscious on the floor. I don't know what happened, I have no story. And I look at her and she's got hives and she's got wheezing. Or even, because she's unconscious, she's got ultra perfusion and she's got wheezing. I could go, bam, I think this could be anaphylaxis. I'm going to give epi right away. No questions asked. I'm going to start the anaphylaxis pathway because there's skin or mucous membranes and either cardiovascular or respiratory. Just with no history, no nothing, I'm going to give epi. And then there's the, let's say that we have no idea what Ginger's allergic to. And we're sitting there and she's eating some strawberry yogurt and all of a sudden she starts vomiting like an hour. Usually it's like an hour later. She starts vomiting and having hives. So she had an exposure to a potential allergen. Strawberries are very allergenic and she's having two of four systems involved GI symptoms or respiratory symptoms or cardiovascular or skin and mucus. If you have two of those four, let's say that you ate the strawberry yogurt. And now you've got vomiting and wheezing. I'd call it anaphylaxis and give you epi. That's where the two, that's where, and that's where the two of the four came from. And then let's say that Ginger goes, I am allergic to bees. I know I have anaphylaxis to bees and a bee comes in and they sting her. All I need is one, like just one, just like, so just hypotension. I'm going to go ahead and give epi as soon as possible because I know that her body is allergic to bees. We know this. We don't need to wait for her to give us the second symptom. So anaphylaxis is weird. It's got a very vague definition and then the treatment course is really broken down, but it's primarily a, if you think it's anaphylaxis, give epi. 
I always teach it as both upper and lower because anaphylaxis can cause strider. You can have it swelling of anywhere in your body. You can have the swelling in your neck, which can cause strider. You can have the swelling in your lungs, which can cause wheezing. So we can't really say it's one or the other because it can cause both. And again, it's all that treating symptoms, right? So after you give your epi, always give your epi first. It is the life-saving treatment. If they're wheezing, albuterol. If they've got strider, um, inhaled epinephrine. And you're treating that symptom. The next thing is, where do you give the epi? So Ginger, where would you give epinephrine? I would give it in the lateral thigh, intramuscular. Why would you, why would you give it in the lateral thigh? Because it's really vascular and I think it gets to the central circulation quickly. Totally. It's the biggest muscle with great blood supply and it's going to get the epinephrine to the circulation the fastest. It works wonderfully. Now, if you're listening to this, you should probably look at your protocol and see. So um, I lecture on this, right? This is my passion. I just did this refresh talk and I'm like, fastest lateralis, do the thigh, do the thigh. And then we had a medic come in and with a kid in anaphylaxis and they had given the shot in the arm. And I was like, dude, why didn't you give the shot in the fastest lateralis? And it's because it's the protocol, right? And this is the problem when you have protocols is you need to see what's going on. It turned out in all of their stuff, when it says to do a shot and to do IM, and when you actually break down where can they give IM injections, it says the deltoid or the glute. And this is why we need to be communicating constantly with people who are out in the field and practicing. And when we see things asking about it, the medic, we opened up and we sat there together and looked at the different protocols and the different procedures. And I was able to get feedback immediately on we need to change and update this so that we can make sure that everyone in anaphylaxis gets the shot in the thigh. Now, saying that, um, we had just updated the pediatric anaphylaxis. And so in the pediatric protocol, which is one that I more heavily was like really editing, that one I had recommended lateral thigh. And so in the pediatric protocol this year, it says lateral thigh and it's in parentheses, like very clear, but not for the adults. So Right this year, our adults are going to, our, our kids are going to get better anaphylaxis <laughs> treatment, and then next year we'll fix the one for the adults. But it's constantly so. If you are listening to this and you're like, I can't give it to levastis lateralis, that's probably just an oversight error, and just reaching out to your medical director, or whoever's writing the protocols, and letting them be aware that this is evidence based treatment and. It, there's so much things to look at. It's just some things get missed, and this is where you can fix your system. I like that. So are we ready to move to the lower airway? A Medic Mindset listener wanted you to talk a little bit about ketamine and asthma. Ketamine works great in asthma. But it's not. this is not like a, we're going to use it early in the pathway. So you, typically how I use ketamine with asthma, it's not something I use very often in asthma because I have so many tools. The game with asthma is how do we not intubate you? How do we stave you off from ever needing a tube? Because an an intubated asthmatic is ridiculously difficult to manage. It's very dangerous and they're hard to get extubated. So the whole goal is how do you decrease the inflammation enough for the time for the steroids to kick in to even add in more decreased inflammation so that you can stave off a tube? Usually it's like I'm doing my Duoneb and I'm giving really high dose steroids and then I'll start my magnesium. I love mag. I love to give it as soon as possible for my severe asthmatics and I'm giving fluids and sometimes I get really agitated too. And just like a little bit of a benzodiazepine can reduce their anxiety and can also settle their breathing and help. 
if they're getting really bad, I'm going, man, I'm, and I'm trying, I'll try positive pressure ventilation. If they're not needing a ton of oxygen in the hospital, we can even do Heliox. You can, for adults, you do BiPAP. We do the positive pressure for kids just like that as well. I am at the, but if you're going, this is kid is circling the drain or like even adult. And I'm thinking about intubating like that is on my, I'm, I'm, I'm at that point where things aren't working. The positive pressure is not working. I've given my everything in my arsenal. I will try ketamine. It's fantastic because it is, it will help calm them down. It will help open the lungs up. And if they do need to be intubated, you can actually do awake intubations with this. Or, I mean, you could do like with kids, you do need like paralytics to help your first pass success. So you can give ketamine. And then if that's not enough and they're still working really hard, then you can give your paralytic and intubate. So it's nice because there have been times where you're like, they're crappy, they're crappy, they're crappy, they're horrible. We're going to have to go to intubation. You give ketamine and that was all they needed and they're great and you don't have to intubate them. Mm -hmm. I've also seen this with our status epilepticus where we end up using ketamine to go to intubate because they're they're not protecting their airway well enough and you give the ketamine and they're fine. And that's after numerous Mm anticonvulsants. So ketamine is not like your first go-to anticonvulsant drug, but, Mm -hmm. but it does work there as well. In the Refresh 2021 video, you had great videos of kids in respiratory distress. Um, they are my collect. I collect them. They're so good. I hope everyone listening will go check it out. I, I don't want to do like a spoiler or anything, but you had some a patient who, if you just glanced at them, you might think they're in respiratory distress, but really it was effortless tachypnea. So what conditions can cause a pediatric or really any human to be tachypnic, but it's not a respiratory, not respiratory in origin. So your lungs help you compensate your pH throughout your body and your lungs help you. They help you excrete your CO2 in your waste. And so one of the things is if your body is having a buildup of acid, then you're going to bring breathe faster to get more acid off to try to balance out your body's pH. So anything that's making you acidotic is going to make you tachypnic for a respiratory compensation. Mm -hmm. So anything with acidosis, a septic patient, and if they're septic to the point of being acidotic, they're going to be tachypnic. And so there's actually literature out there showing that your end tidal CO2, if it's low in your febrile septic patient, that's actually not reassuring. That's a bad thing. That means that they're, they're acidotic and trying to blow off that excess acid. The other really big thing that we see with kids, and this is um, even not even needing an entitled CO2 and seeing it's low, is your DKA, your diabetic ketoacidosis. And so these kids can get very, very acidotic from their DKA, and they will be very, very tachypnic. Um, And so we have different zones in the ER. We have our high acuity where like the sickest of the sick go. And then we have this another area where we have monitor beds. And then we have this other area where it's like a lot of workup, belly pains, simple lacerations. Like you don't need to be on a monitor. You're not, you're not that sick, but we might need to do some ultrasound and blood work, maybe some procedures. And then we have a very low acuity area as well. So I was in the area where you don't need to be on a monitor. You're not that sick, but you might need to work up. You need a little bit more. And so I walk in the room, the dad's like, yeah, I'm here because he's, he has a little bit of a cold and I just thought he was breathing funny. They thought the kid had a cold from triage. He got triage through his like a cold breathing funny. And I look at the kid and runny nose, a little bit of a fever, a little bit of a cough, nothing significant, not asthmatic, like, like nothing at all. Like his lungs, like he looks great, but he's just breathing funny. 
And so I'm sitting there and sometimes I'll talk to the patient longer and the family longer and I'll just hang out in the room longer so that I can get in, like, just sit and quietly observe the kid because observation and prolonged observation will tell you a lot. Just watching someone's human form and how it's moving is so helpful. And so I, I just sat and chatted with the family for a while and just watched this kid and he's not retracting. He's not wheezing. Like there's no respiratory sounds. His lungs perfectly clear, but I watch him. I'm like, he's breathing really. I agree. <laughs> he's breathing really fast. He's like happy and chatting. He's just, you just see his chest moving up and down. He's just breathing faster than normal. And I go to the dad and I go, has he been peeing a lot more than usual? And the dad goes, well, yeah, but it's because he's drinking so much. <laughs> I was like, all right, let's get a blood sugar. And sure enough, he was in DKA. And that was how he presented was because he was breathing funny. We see that very, very commonly. I think uh, tachypnea without distress is really sneaky. And it illuminates that we really aren't very good about counting respiratory rates unless the person looks like an obvious distress or tripoding or something. It's true. And and the funny thing is with kids, um, the younger ones, like let's say the under two-year-olds, they can even have periodic breathing. So they might breathe really fast and then breathe really slow and then breathe really fast and then breathe really slow. So if you're not actually counting their resp- respirations over 30 seconds and multiplying by two or counting for a full minute, you can miscount their respiratory rate because hmm. you might get them in a fast phase or you might get them in a slow phase. So like for an adult, you could count them for 15 seconds and multiply by four. But for a kid, I'll actually sit and watch. And, and I have to say, as for more practice, because I love to stare at kids' rib cages, this is what I do. Um, you just get to a point where you just look at them. They just, they just start interesting, like look at people. Do they look like they're breathing more comfortable, like, like fast? Like you can just look at them and be like, wow, you're breathing fast. I don't even have to count it. I can just look mm-hmm. at you and go, you look like you're breathing more than I would expect. Like you, mm-hmm. you're fast. It's not even a number. Like you can just start to just look at someone and go, you look like you, you look like you're breathing too fast for your, your little body. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is trauma, like really bad trauma can lead to acidosis. So that's another one where your end tidal CO2 can be lower and they can be more tachypnic because of the acidosis occurring in their body. It's a, it's a ha- handy thing to be aware of, not just for respiratory season. Yeah. I like to do uh, like a three takeaways, three takeaways I took from this talk or our our visit. For me, one is definitely not being shy about suctioning this stuff out of their nose when they're little littles, exposing the chest fully, and then uh, epi in the vastus lateralis. Those are probably my three bigs. How about you? I would add a fourth one to you and go... Um, you can use that Andy bag for a non-invasive positive pressure ventilation in your worsening respiratory. And a fifth one, the PAT, it's just amazing. Use it. Yep. That's good. You get one more if you want. You get three. We both get three. But I like the ones you gave too. I think they're very okay. helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, I've got one more. Please. One more. Yeah. Okay. As a medic, you are applying and using the protocols. And so your feedback on the system is very, very necessary. If you see that there's something in the protocol or the way the procedure is written that makes it so you're not able to give evidence-based care that your patients need, it's possibly just an oversight of the system and we need your feedback. Your feedback is 
Very, very crucial. Just like I was talking about with the IM epi and giving it in the vastus lateralis, we all assume it's going to be given there. If there's just an oversight on how something is written, assume it's just an oversight and inform someone. That way it can get fixed for the next time protocols are all updated. That's a great place to leave it. I think a lot about systems and system design and an important piece of system design is the feedback within that system. And because of medical directors like you that are approachable, we're starting to finally get these medics that are comfortable just having a a conversation with their medical director. So I appreciate you coming on. and It's really helpful to have medical directors come on the show. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's you do such great work. You are you're very very well known in the EMS community. Well, thank you. Well so known much. and respected. Thank you. Yeah, well known is one thing, right? <laughs> all right. Well, we'll we'll talk soon. And um, thanks again for all your time. Thank you, Ginger. Every episode of the Thinking Series features cover art created by a medic who's also an artist. Justin Derner, a photographer, shared his talent with us for this one. I've linked to his Instagram in the show notes. Thank you, Justin.